It's Wednesday, November the 18th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining us today is the crack Irish Times political team of Pat Leahy, Jennifer Bray and Harry McGeehan. Folks, before we start, I want to say well done to you all, as well as to our many contributors and our production team of Declan Condon, Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan, and not to mention our indefatigable engineer JJ Vernon, because Inside Politics was named Podcast of the Year at last night's news brand Ireland Journalism Awards. Big group, virtual hug, guys. Congratulations to you, Hugh. Yeah, well done, Hugh. Well done to the team. Fantastic achievement. The Irish Times Women's Podcast and the Irish Times Coronavirus Podcast, also nominated, and they deserve a tip of the hat because they're both very good. Also, normally, like on this morning, we'd all be coming in with stinking hangovers, you know, from the journalism awards the night before, trying to hold it together, and we're not. And I just want to say that I'm very disappointed about that. Yeah, I, I did have a couple of glasses of wine and we had a WhatsApp virtual round table with my colleagues in the feature department. But it wasn't quite the same thing in that we didn't end up in, in Kyo's pub in South Street at one o'clock Having fights outside. Anyway, exactly, just to say, exactly. if that wasn't enough to be telling our listeners about, I want to remind them also of our next Inside Politics live event. That's happening tomorrow, Thursday, November the 19th at seven o'clock in the evening and with negotiations on, on the future trade relationship between Britain and the EU reaching their end point over the next few days. I'm going to be joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, and by Gideon Rack the Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator with the Financial Times and also by Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University to discuss the UK's future place in the world and what it means for Ireland in particular. And to join us for this live video discussion, just go to irishtimes.com slash Britain Beyond Brexit to book your ticket in advance. The price of admission is €20 or it's just €10 for Irish Times subscribers. So remember, that is irishtimes.com slash Britain Beyond Brexit. Now, it's not exactly all quiet on the domestic front either. We're leading again, Pat, today with the fallout from the Seamus Wolf story, the golf gate, the exchange of public letters with the Chief Justice, the throwing it into the lap of the Oireachtas and the Oireachtas promptly throwing it back. Um, where do we stand now? Is the remaining focus purely on the the process which led to the appointment of Seamus Wolf in the first place? Is everything else done and dusted? I think yesterday was a very important day in this controversy, Hugh, uh, for two reasons. First, we had the clear statement from the government that it is not going to prosecute any further action on it. It is not going to seek to remove uh, Mr. Justice Wolf by means of an Article 35 motion in the Oireachtas, which I presume means that if an Article 35 motion is put down, and that could yet happen because the people before Profit uh, Solidarity group of TDs have indicated that they may yet do so. But if such a motion is put down, it is clear, I think, that it will be defeated over uh, overwhelmingly and it would be defeated in its initial vote. So what would happen is that a motion would go down and TDs would vote whether to begin a process which would involve setting up uh, setting up a special committee to investigate uh, the issue and so forth. But I think it's clear now that it would not pass that first hurdle. So if an Article 35 motion does go down, it will be, uh, it will, I think, be uh, be voted down. The second reason I think why yesterday was significant is that there was a meeting of the Board of the Judicial Council. And while there wasn't a formal statement issued afterwards, there were reports which are clearly well sourced by Mary Carolyn uh, in our paper and by others, suggesting that uh, you know, the judges will get on with things, the judges will behave as adults. And I think the sort of, you know, cataclysmic 
potential outcome that was speculated upon in some quarters to the effect that, you know, other judges from the Supreme Court could resign or whatever if the Oireachtas did not take uh, action against Mr. Justice Wolf. That possibility now seems to have uh, receded. So, in a way, I don't think the affair is completely over, um, but I, I think we are certainly past an important stage of it yesterday. The bit that remains, I think, and that we may see more of this uh, today uh, in terms of questions in the doll, is the questions that surround or the mystery that surrounds the process of appointment uh, of Mr. Seamus Wolfe uh, back in um, Mr. Justice Wolf back in uh, the at the end of the end of June, start of July, just at the turnover of of uh, of of the last administration and this administration, and Minister for Justice Helen McEntee, who brought the uh, the name of Mr. Justice Wolf or James Wolf as he then was to cabinet for uh, for nomination. Uh, to the Supreme Court in mid-July, while in the background there was this issue that we've reported on, of three judges uh, of the higher courts having expressed an interest in the job but not, uh, not being selected, which is fine, but the Taoiseach and the Green Party leader, uh, Eamon Ryan, were not made aware of their appointment. They were simply told, as far as we could piece together, that uh, one name had come through the Judicial Appointments Board and that was that of Seamus Wolfe and he would be therefore appointed. Now, to anyone looking at this, um, you know, with with reasonably objective eyes, this looks like a piece of pretty sharp practice on the part of Fine Gael. And I think that that aspect of the uh, controversy is not yet over and will be probed by opposition politicians. So I think that the danger, if you like, to Mr. Justice Wolf has probably passed, albeit that he will continue to serve a uh, an effective suspension from uh, from the court without salary until next February. But the political danger to the government uh, remains. Harry. A week ago, when we went in, uh, with, with some depth through this subject with, with Ruan McCormick, uh, Ruan laid out four possible paths that could arise. One was that uh, the Seamus Wolf would, would resign. Um, another one was that he would be impeached by the Oireachtas. Um, another one was that he, that the Oireachtas would take no action, but there would be further consequences within the highest levels of the judiciary, namely resignations, I, I presumed, of, of some sort by other judges. And the fourth one was that nothing would happen. And it seems now that the fourth one is definitely the most uh, the most likely outcome. There seems to have been a successful attempt to lower the temperature in the days that followed the, the publication of the correspondence between the two judges, both among the um, the political classes and also, as Pat suggests, and we report in the newspaper today, among the judges who are all seem to be saying now, well, you know, we all have to work with people who we don't necessarily get along with that well, but we're all growing ups and we're going to do that. Yeah, well, it was obvious um right from the start that this turkey was never going to fly. But it did take uh, some parties a long time to realise that. And there was blowback, as we reported last week, uh, to the very notion of impeachment 
from day one. And when you started parsing it, if you stood back a little bit and started parsing the, the, uh, the, the threshold for impeachment, there was no way in, in a million years that Seamus Wolfe was ever going to cross that threshold. And everybody realised that after a while. And the politicians realised it. I think the, the realisation kind of crept by osmosis across the Liffey to the forecourts. I think ultimately uh, they realised it uh, too. And the focus changed during the week from Seamus Wolfe to Frank Clark, and people began to question the basis of the correspondence and some of the pronouncements that he had made in the correspondence, uh, especially that killer paragraph in which he said he had no role uh, in requesting Seamus Wolfe to resign or asking him to resign, but he nevertheless went on to deliver his personal opinion uh, that he should resign, which was not part and parcel of his remit by, by even expressing it, by committing it to paper and then publicising that uh, that carried all the weight of a Chief Justice and uh, he was the subject of quite a lot of criticism uh, for that. I, I thought the government was very slow in terms of acting. I thought it gave too much deference uh, to the message that had come across to it from the four courts. I think it was slow in uh, contacting the opposition. It was slow in soliciting views from the opposition. It was slow in arriving out of position itself and then after going through the process of consulting with the opposition on Friday, it went and peremptorily decided on Monday that it wasn't going to proceed with it uh, any further. So it kind of handled it all in a kind of a messy and cack-handed way. And it was no surprise that we had uh, the usual scenes of wailing and gnashing of teeth in the doll yesterday afternoon as the opposition uh, parties complained bitterly about the uh, the the uh, trite way in which the, the government had handled um, all uh, of that. So um, yeah, I, I I agree completely with what Pat has said. I think um, and what Ruins fourth uh, possibility was it's to do by doing nothing, they are doing something, because by doing nothing, they're essentially handing the responsibility back to the judiciary, and the judiciary uh, had to make its mind up as to what further action it could take. And it couldn't really take any further action because uh, constitutionally it's not uh, empowered to deal uh, with with uh, internal matters like this inter se because there's no judicial council disciplinary tribunal set up and won't, it won't be set up for another year. So um, I, I think the Judicial Council took a decision that they, they just let the matter rest. Uh, they would allow Seamus Wolfe to serve out uh, his voluntary uh, uh, suspension until February and then try to deal with it, as Pat said, like adults in a room and try to come to some arrangement uh, where the where the judges of the Supreme Court could work together. So what reflected badly on Seamus Wolfe in the initial moments after that explosive correspondence was, was released last weekend when people stood back from it, I think the reflection turned uh, on the judiciary and I think the judiciary have decided that they are that they, the best thing for them to do at the moment is to cut their losses and to try to continue in as uh, uh, amiable and as amicable uh, a way as possible. Because the reality is, Jen, isn't it? And I, I'm surprised perhaps that, that it took a while for this to dawn on some of the senior members of, of the judiciary involved in that, is that the wording in the Constitution is deliberately vague, I think, about the standard of misdemeanour or misbehaviour which has to be risen to in order for an impeachment to to take place. 
But it generally is pretty broadly accepted that whatever whatever one may think of Seamus Wolfe's behaviour in the Golfgate controversy and his behaviour afterwards, it really doesn't rise to that standard. So this mechanism would have been used to solve a problem for the judiciary rather than for the purpose for which it was intended, which might cause all kinds of, you know, precedents which, which the judiciary themselves, you know, wouldn't want. So it does make sense that they've just decided to put a lid on this thing. Yeah, it's that old phrase of using a sledgehammer to, to crack a nut, really, isn't it? And I think that was one of the biggest concerns um, that the politicians had about this whole, I suppose, process was that if they did go down the road of an impeachment motion and if they did uh, establish those processes and those committees, that what they would effectively be doing is setting a precedent and that this level of misbehaviour, if you want to call it that, um, would be the accepted precedent in the future. I mean, what one politician said to me over the weekend is that they were worried that they'd set the bar quite low and so low um, that in future it would involve the Oireachtas, I suppose, in far more of these types of situations, which is something, as you can see, that they absolutely do not want. But I do think that there is still a little bit of road left in this in terms of the Oireachtas. We know that the Dahl's Committee on Procedures still has to meet. And the purpose, I think, of that meeting will be to get further legal um, advice. And I think after that, after that meeting takes place, you might see parties like the SOC Dems uh, and Labour come out and perhaps be definitive about whether they believe, and as they've indicated before, um, whether they believe that there is a role here for the Oireachtas. Um, at the weekend, Catherine Murphy said it was a very open question about whether the Oireachtas should be involved or not. And I suppose the second thing then is, if, you know, as it looks like 95% likely that this entirely moves away from the Oireachtas back to the courts and they do nothing and move on to sit with um, Justice Wolf, then this leaves open the question of the, uh, I suppose, the explanations from Helen McEntee about the process that went behind this. And over the weekend, I was working on story on Sunday and I was chatting to someone in government who was telling me that they were going to, um, I suppose, reject the uh, demands for her to go into the doll and explain, um, you know, the process behind other judges expressing interest. But one of the reasons they gave me for that was because any such debate in the doll could interact or could potentially um, be harmful towards any other process uh, that the doll may undertake, with, such as an impeachment motion. So if that way is cleared, I suppose, one of the big reasons for not having her coming into the doll uh, no longer stands. Uh, and I think we'll see more pressure on her in, in the coming days. I don't think that the opposition are going to let the, that particular aspect um, of it go. And if you don't have the, I suppose, the reason or the excuse, whatever way you want to put it, uh, of potentially um, interacting or harming or, uh, you know, putting in putting in danger a impeachment process, then what is your uh, line of defence? It's the separation of powers again. But even then, does that one stack up? So we'll see what way that plays out in the coming days. Pat, I mean, finally on this on this subject, strictly one of the people who comes out a bit better than usual out of this particular subject is is Shane Ross because some of his accusations of a jerry-built appointments process, which is going to be misused by the political establishment to, for its own ends, are kind of borne out from what we see about the process by which Seamus Wolfe was appointed. Up to a point, Hugh, but only up to a point. I think the uh, my my. Criticism of the Shane Ross uh, bill, apart from its kind of internal messiness when it was before the doll, was that in a way it was a solution in search of a problem. You know, of all the difficulties that uh, that the country faces, I, I'm I'm not sure that you know a, 
I'm, well, I'm pretty sure that a bad or corrupt or compromised judiciary is uh, is not amongst them. And while there are certainly shortcomings in the uh, uh, in the process for appointing judges, and there are aspects of it which can and should be more transparent. I think it would be hard to argue that it has produced a problematic judiciary. But leaving that aside, I think there's three further points that are are worth worth making that will have a bearing on the remnants of this controversy as it plays out today and later this week. The first is that I think from my conversations with uh, TDs and people in and around Leinster House and government, I don't know what the other guys think, but while it's clear that most TDs, I think, don't believe that whatever Seamus Wolfe may or may not have done is grounds for impeachment. I think that's clear. But at the same time, I think most of them think he should probably have resigned, either because of his attendance in Clifton at the Oireachtas Golfgate dinner are because of the comments that were subsequently publicised when the transcript of his interview with Mrs Justice Denham um, was, uh, was, was published. And certainly, and that being borne out further uh, when the, the, the text of the letters with the Chief Justice was, was released this week. So while they don't think that his behaviour amounts to impeachment, I think they w- would have expected that, you know, It'd be hard to think of of judges in the past who wouldn't have resigned for uh, for for this sort of controversy, even if only to save the court from the difficulties in which it now finds uh, finds itself. The second point that uh, is that this you know idea that this matter can't be discussed in the uh, in in the doll, which is you know, what some people in, in government are trying to suggest is simply not borne out by uh, by a couple of things. One of them is the very clear statement of the Kian Korla. I think that while there, there couldn't be questions about the merits of any particular appointee, meaning in this case, uh, Mr. Justice Wolf, that the process itself is certainly amenable to interrogation by the um, uh, by, by TDs as long as it doesn't traverse into that territory. And the final point is that uh, Michal Martin himself raised the process by which the former Attorney General Maura Whelan was appointed to the Court of Appeal back in 2017, at, again at the turnover of uh, of two governments, the previous one led by Enda Kenny and the new one led by uh, by Leo Varadkar. And um, and, and Mr. Martin had some very strong things to say in the doll about not the merits of Maura Whelan, though he did, if you go back and look at the uh, at the transcript, he did make some comments about that. But his real target was the process by which she was um, by which she was appointed. So I think it will be difficult for the government to maintain this position that um, uh, that this process is not amenable to interrogation. By the uh, by, by the Oireachtas. and I think we'll see the opposition raise those points today and for the rest of the week. We'll see how that turns out. But moving on, Harry, I mean, you were talking um, just there about how the approach to this had been a little bit shambolic uh, and perhaps slow from the government. Um, something similar seems to have arisen in relation to this 
social media panic over people slugging pints outside pubs in central Dublin over the course of the weekend at, I suppose, the same moment at which the decline in positive COVID cases, which we've seen over the last month or so, seems to have flattened or maybe even slightly reversed. And a knee-jerk reaction from the government when they decided that they were going to ban this sort of activity without perhaps doing their homework first to see if that was a good idea? Yeah, they got a bang on the knee and then a Pavlovian reaction, but they ended up kicking themselves in the arse um, with the with the uh, with the way that they kind of handled it, uh, Frank McNally had a great uh, column in the paper this morning about fifty things that have shamed us this year, you know, and he could have added fifty one because this was shameful exercise by by the government in populism. I mean, it was just really stupid. There was a video that went out at the weekend, the centre of Dublin, uh, and I live near a couple of parks in Dublin, and every night you hear various <laughs> sounds coming from the parks as teenagers. And 20-somethings congregate. And it's terrible and they shouldn't be doing it. But they are because they are teenagers and they are 20-somethings. And it's, it's, you know, it's impossible to corral everybody in. So what happened was that there was a couple of pubs that were serving pints and takeaway drink. And people started congregating uh, in and around uh, uh, the streets of, of South Inner City Dublin on, on Saturday night. Uh, there were videos that were distributed. But the guards went uh, around and notably, the guards said afterwards that they they that that nobody was breaching social distancing guidelines when they did their patrols. So what happened was um, a mountain was made out of a molehill, essentially. And Stephen Donnelly and our Michal Martin came up with this uh, uh, wheeze on on Sunday, Monday, uh, that they were going to ban the sale of um, drink from pubs. And you you have to take into the, the the context with this is everything. I mean, pubs have been absolutely hammered during uh, this pandemic crisis. They've been effectively closed uh, for most of the time. And when they've been opened, they they have opened only in the most limited of circumstances. And the the amount of money that they generate from selling takeaway pints would only be a tiny sliver or fraction of what they would normally uh, make. And it's really just trying to keep their heads. Uh, uh, above uh, the water. So a measure like this would have been disproportionately uh, punitive on publicans for two reasons. Number one, this wasn't something that was happening all over the country. It was an isolated incident. I think there was one that was similar in Black Rock, the South Dublin suburb, the previous weekend, but it wasn't happening all over the place. So to take a law uh, for the whole uh, country based on a video and based on one isolated incident would have been deeply and inherently um, unfair. And secondly, if the perception was, and this was something that came strongly from rural uh, TDs within Fianna Fáil and also from ministers on the Fine Gael and Green side, is that this was just really going to be unfair to, to publicans and that the, the, uh, the reaction to it, the kind of the gloomy George Pavlovian reaction to it, uh, was grotesquely disproportionate to what had happened. So they brought this. The Attorney General said you can't really do that. So then they said we're going to we're going to introduce fines for anybody who congregates in groups of more than two. We're going to slap an eighty euro fine on it. But by the time even that got to cabinet, it was uh, quickly uh, with uh, withdrawn. And I think they were right. And I just think the government needs to stand back a little bit before arriving at decisions and not be reacting. Uh, uh, in a in a venal uh, and and Pavlovian fashion uh, to every passing uh, bit of controversy that floats across uh, our airwaves or gets into our newspapers. I suppose, Jen, some of that Pavlovian reaction, it seems to me, was actually being stoked by 
senior members of the medical profession who are involved with NFET. And is it possible that this is part of the first shots being fired in a war over the exit from level five, which is due to take place in um, less than two weeks' time, um, if that sticks to schedule? Um, are we going to see increased tensions and perhaps perceived media manipulation as well, as we had several weeks ago when level five was first booted by by Tony Holohan and Enfit? Yeah, I think um, there is a certain degree of concern, um, though not surprise, uh, in government circles at when they hear members of the Enfet or the Nefet, whatever way you want to pronounce it yourself, coming out on the radio and kind of making pronouncements about what should be done, you know, how many contacts a week you should have, uh, what you need to do next, what we need to do in the next two weeks, because the fear is that, you know, the last time around that was that Tony Holohan and the Nefet tried to bounce the government into a lockdown and that this time they're trying to, I suppose, dictate the terms of the exit. And we know like that the relationship between the uh, government and between Nefet uh, was reset the last time by their sudden call for for a level five that took everybody by surprise and led to a whole week of um, rancor. And I think this time around, the government would be very keen to avoid a situation whereby it's the public health experts out on the radio and on the television and it's them on the other side trying to manage both what they're saying and also what they want to do in terms of reopening the economy. And it's a delicate balance and it's a difficult, I suppose, it's a difficult line to tread, but they'll have to do it. You know, I think that, you know, in terms of the weekend, uh, what you were talking about on, on the takeaway points and whatnot, I do agree with Harry that, um, it would have been completely disproportionate. And the fact that the memo was pulled tells you everything that you need to know. But they're going to have to really work on those kind of communications and that perception that they're not entirely on top of um, their response to this. Um, and I think as well, they perhaps showed at the weekend that one thing, they're a little bit too tuned into the public mood because when people see these videos of people drinking out on, on on streets and, you know, they're in week four of six of a lockdown. Everyone's feeling a bit despondent. People may not have seen anybody in weeks and weeks. We're all locked up indoors, etc. And then they see these videos that there is an instant anger and there's, you know, a lot of, um, I suppose, bitterness about that. And perhaps the politicians are a little bit too tuned into that. And that's them reacting to that kind of anger and want to be seen to be, you know, doing things and, 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 um, in order to, I suppose, save the the public uh, response to the to the lockdown as well. So yeah, I think we'll see over the next two two or three weeks. I, next week in particular, we'll see far more um, conversation on exiting lockdown. The cabinet will discuss it next Tuesday. I think there'll be a cabinet subcommittee on it as well before before that, and they'll go through their response, how they're going to plan this exit from lockdown, and then. What one um, minister said to me yesterday was that the government wants next week to tell people, here is what your December is going to look like. You know, we're, they, As they put it to me, they were saying, we want to level with people and tell them exactly what, what you expect. So they'll have to nail down in the next few days whether it's a staggered exit, you know, whether we come out into a level three and hopefully move to a level two, um, or whether we come out on the other way around. All that still has to be decided. Yeah, Pat, I mean, yourself and myself and our health editor, Paul Cullen, talked about both the politics and the science of this just before uh, the weekend just passed. Um, I was listening to Catherine Martin, the uh, minister for everything that gets shut down on the radio this morning. And at one point she was talking about this flattening of the numbers and she said oh, behaviour was very good, but it seemed to change in the fourth week. Now, the, the fourth week of level five was only last week. So the numbers we're seeing now do not pertain to any behaviour last week, because as we know, there's a time lag of 10, 10 to 14 days between people's behaviour and seeing it in terms of tests. 
You said previously that there are some members of the government who take with a grain of salt uh, the assertions about the the necessity for Level 5 being introduced at the time it was introduced and point to the fact that we were already seeing quite a significant reduction as a result of the, the, the Level 3 uh, measures which had already been in place. Does that suspicion extend to what we are likely to see in terms of proposals from the medical profession for for December? In other words, are we likely to see, I suppose, real fireworks between one side and the other on those kind of questions? Well, there's certainly, um, Hugh, a dialogue going on at the moment behind closed doors. I mean, uh, Jen has described for us the timetable in terms of next week and what will happen and when decisions will be taken because, as she rightly says, the government wants to have this plan clear in its head by this time next week so it can prepare people for the reopening that is due to take place the following week and for what is to come in December after that. But what that means is that decisions will have to be taken over the next few days uh, on, on what the pathway to reopening is and on a basic level like what businesses are going to be allowed to reopen in uh, at the at the start of December in uh, in less than a fortnight's time are we going straight to level 2 are we going to level 3 are we going to level 3 plus uh, you know which would allow most retail to open but the pubs and restaurants having to stay closed and so there's a fair bit of wrangling going on behind closed doors about this at the moment and the noises that we've been hearing in public from Neffet I think are in part at least a reflection of that internal debate and an attempt at the same time to influence its final direction. People in government that I've spoken to are very aware of this and you know, there was an, an echo of it in a story that we we have on the front page of the paper today, which includes a letter from Danny McCoy, chief executive of IBEC, setting out the position of the business community and pointing out, uh, complaining to Michal Martin in this letter that was sent yesterday that uh, about the public comments of Neffet and interestingly pointing out to Michal Martin that uh, that that he understood that he Danny McCoy and Ibeck understood that the government was going to do something uh, about uh, about the public comments of Neffet which obviously hasn't happened uh, so um, I, I think that process is going on at the moment and we will see uh, you know, albeit that it is taking place mostly behind closed doors, we will hear some of the uh, the noises off stage uh, from that. We will see some of the the public outworking of that over the coming days. Especially, Neffet holds a meeting tomorrow. It briefs the um, uh, and it briefs the minister for health. Uh, after that, and it also takes place, as you say, against this background of the decline in cases that had been pretty evident since the introduction of the lockdown and therefore not attributable to the lockdown. Uh, That decline in the number of cases seems to have abated somewhat just in recent days. And there is some concern about that in Neffet. I spoke to some uh, I spoke to a person yesterday who would be reasonably familiar with their thinking on, uh, on this. And I said, look, is this stuff in recent days, is it just uh, part of this dance that's going on vis-a-vis the government uh, about uh, 
trying to influence the plan for the next stage. And he said kind of yes and no, that is going on, but they are genuinely a bit spooked about these numbers over the last days. And the numbers are the numbers. We can see them over the last five days. The decline has abated and crept up. Uh, the average, the five-day average has crept up uh, a little bit, notwithstanding the fact that the longer uh, the longer averages over seven and 14 days continue to fall. But that would probably stop over uh, over the next few days. So it is a complex picture, but it is a moving picture. And there are deadlines in this. There are deadlines for decisions that will affect December, will affect the reopening, will affect the Christmas that we all have. And those decisions have to be taken in the coming days. Yeah, it strikes me, Harry, listening to that, that the factor that perhaps isn't taken into account fully by by NFET, but maybe should be taken into account at least by the politicians and the uh, and the government, is that um, personally, I think what we're seeing here now is people have had enough and they are uh, bringing their own interpretations of the rules to the table. And, and those interpretations perhaps are becoming looser as the weeks wear on. I do not believe that people are staying within five kilometre limits, for example, which, um, according to the medical professionals, is one of the one of the the key limitations. I think you just need to look at the traffic on the roads to know that that's not the case. Um, businesses are adjusting. You can see shops with queues of people outside for click and collect. People are adjusting their, their retail behaviour. And all of that is perfectly understandable. And all those pressures to do more of those kind of things are, are going to rise as we approach Christmas, aren't they? So the government has to take all those pragmatic realities uh, on board b- before presuming that just announcing a set of rules and uh, and expecting them to be followed is going to happen because it's not. Yeah, and there are two two uh, phenomena there uh, that, that 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 you've correctly identified. The one is this notion of fatigue, and it's very apparent. Anyone who goes out will see that the lockdown now is materially different from the one that occurred during March and April, and people are being more cavalier in terms of their behaviour. The second is the 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 and it relates to fatigue is that the question mark over, you know, how many lockdowns can be tolerated uh, before the tension finally gives way and everything snaps apart. We have news today, for example, that Dublin Zoo is in danger of closing permanently because they have no income and they're spending half a million euro per month in terms of just trying to maintain uh, the the health and welfare of, of their animals there. And I mean, you just have to count. I mean, it's, it's going to take a long time to find out how many businesses will not survive this uh, pandemic. Now, when we went into level five, I was sceptical about that. I'm a little bit less sceptical now, given what's been happening in the rest of Europe. And even though the situation here, I think, is relatively contained, I was just looking at the figures there a second ago uh, from throughout Europe and our 14 day level, we are, I think, the second lowest at the moment. Uh, Finland is at 54.7%. Ireland is at 114.3. And then you go kind of into multiples of that. Slovenia is nearly 1,000 per fortnight. Austria is over 1,000. They went into a lockdown yesterday. Uh, France, 783. United Kingdom, 505. Italy, back up to 800. And the same uh, distressing scenes we saw in Italy last March and April are beginning to re-emerge in some pockets there. So we, unfortunately we probably do need to stay isolated for another short period of time. Time, But people have to be conscious of the hardship that's uh, entailed of it. And I think that people have to also be conscious that when people talk about zero COVID or uh, those who are advocating a zero COVID situation, you have to think of the implications that that will have for livelihoods. And the knock-on effect 
it will have health-wise as well as as in many other respects uh, for people. And I think the other dimension that needs to be taken into account is that this particular wave of COVID hasn't had the same uh, level of mortality as the earlier one. So we're looking at a level of mortality that would be really akin to what might one expect during during a, a flu season. I think there were about uh, 40 deaths during the, the, the flu season uh, as of January in 2020, maybe a little less, I think maybe 30, 30 by January. But I mean, it's not, it's not hugely uh, more than that, even though, of course, COVID uh, spreads far more easily uh, than flu. So I think what's needed is, is some perspective, but also we need to look at, take a wider perspective as well and look at what's happening in, in the rest of Europe. And if there is a reopening in December in terms of Christmas, I think that we have to ensure that uh, if figures don't improve elsewhere in Europe, that we try to minimise international travel in and out of the country as much as we possibly can, because that to me would seem to be the danger uh, in terms of the uh, of the virus coming back. Which might be a tricky thing in its own right. Listen, a brief last thought on this, Jen. You you have a piece in today's newspaper, which is about you got your hands on the minutes of some of the earlier uh, Neffet meetings. Um, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it seems to me that that article to illustrate one of the great truths of human life, which is if you want to find out what happened at a meeting, never read the minutes. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's good. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting just to see kind of, I suppose, the rough outline of what went down uh, in those meetings. And really and truly, if I, was to, if I were to summarise it, it would be that Tony Holohan came back and he put an entirely different frame on how they discussed um, the pandemic. You know, he came back in and said, look, we have We've got to weigh this disease against the, our three core priorities. And in the discussion we're about to have, keep that in your head, which wasn't what was said in the previous meeting, just a couple of days previous. And, you know, I think he came in and I'm completely like, you know, paraphrasing or whatever, but he seemed to grab the situation by the by the scruff of the neck. Um, and it, it really kicked on a debate that they were starting to have about the figures Uh you know, right into the foreground. And um, it did strike me as well that in those meetings that week that there were, there was dissent. There were people in the Neffet who wanted to stay with level three for a while longer. There were people then who were saying level four would be enough. So it wasn't the unanimous kind of view of this team that we should have gone into a level five. And I thought that was interesting. And, And like you say, of course, that's not really expanded on in those minutes, but, you know, it is referenced. The other thing I would say, I suppose, as we come to the end of the year and we'll look back on this year completely dominated by COVID in in a political sense and in a health sense, in every sense. But one of the biggest questions that politically will have to be answered is if you ask yourself, why did we go into two lockdowns? Why has this happened? And the answer is because our health service is not equipped to cope with any large uh, amount of cases. Okay, so that's the reason. So if you get to the end of the year, the big question will be politically, has the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, and the Department of Health and the Department of Taoiseach done enough to increase our capacity in hospitals, particularly in critical care? And I think that'll be a big question that'll have to be answered. And my sense and my feeling from looking at the figures of the number of beds that are available in critical care is that we haven't done even nearly enough. And I think this is one thing that will really, really disappoint people because people have sacrificed a lot. Businesses have sacrificed a lot. There's just been a huge amount of sacrifice. And you get to the end of the year and it's the job of politicians, it's the job of government to address the problems and the reasons why we're here. And if they haven't done that, 
and, you know, we get to December and you have only, let's say, 300 and whatever critical care beds available. We know if it goes above 350, we're in the red zone. So I think, you know, it'll be worth looking at that at the end, at the end of the year, perhaps next month, and, and, and asking ourselves the question, did the government do enough? Right. Well, we shall, we shall leave it there. So thanks indeed to, to Jen, to Pat and to Harry. Thanks to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, and to JJ Vernon on the decks. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.